As I said, we are switching gears today. Thank you for being here. We'll look at you on Clubhouse where we will take calls as well as uh, your questions on Restream, should you have any. Today, my guest is Brigadier General Tata. Uh, hang on, I will get you. I had to jump out of my screen here before I... Uh, there we go. So I can tell you all about the general. He's a geopolitical expert who held the number three position in the Department of Defense. That's right. He, again, is a retired brigadier general, a cross-functional leader involved in an array of businesses with um, things for like advancing cold supply chain to democratizing medical technology. His previous duties included Undersecretary of Defense for Policy. It's the number three position in the Defense Department. And he is also a best-selling author. He has a new book, which is called Chasing the Lion. I have right here which is, and there's the full screen for it, um, and it's a, a page turner, I have to tell you. Our laws as it pertains to substances are draconian and bizarre. The psychopaths start this way. He was an alcoholic because of social media and pornography, PTSD, love addiction, fentanyl and heroin, ridiculous I'm a, I'm a doctor for sake, where the hell you think I learned that? I'm just saying, you go to treatment before you kill people. I am a clinician. I observe things about these chemicals. Let's just deal with what's real. We used to get these calls on Loveline all the time. Educate adolescents and to prevent and to treat. If you have trouble, you can't stop and you want to help stop it. I can help. I got a lot to say. I got a lot more to say. Since the beginning of the pandemic, nearly one in five Americans has reported consuming an unhealthy amount of alcohol. Could be you, but only 10% of them are actually getting the help they need. Reframe is a neuroscience-based smartphone app that helps users cut back or quit drinking alcohol altogether. Using evidence-based tools, techniques, and content, Reframe guides users through a personalized program to help them reach their goals. Comprised of daily tasks, a comprehensive toolkit, a community forum, and accountability guides, Reframe is a modern, accessible, and affordable resource that can help anyone looking to reevaluate their relationship with alcohol. Reframe is backed by Harvard University and Emory University Schools of Medicine, and it is ranked the number one alcohol reduction smartphone app worldwide with over 350,000 downloads. With Reframe, there's no stigma, just science, no labels, just support. To learn more, go to joinreframeapp.com slash Dr. Drew. Use the code Dr. Drew for 25% off your first month or your annual subscription. That's at joinreframeapp.com slash Dr. Drew. Let's bring in Brigadier General Tata. General, welcome. Great to be with you, Drew. Thank you. Um, I got to tell you something. Uh, there's a lot going on in that uh, cranium of yours. The the book, <laughs> the amount of information in every paragraph of your book, I was blown away from the moment I started turning the pages. I mean, you do not write a book like this without having had the experience you've had. I, I, I'm guessing, you know, it's interesting. You know, I've write, I've written uh, fictionalized nonfiction medical books in the past, and I guess I'm pulling upon very explicitly my experience. Are you doing so? It feels like you had to have been in these kinds of places to write this kind of book. Yeah, uh, absolutely. Uh, my my writing, that's, that's uh, Chasing Lines, my 14th novel, and uh, the first in a, a new series from Macmillan, St. Martin's Press, uh, Garrett Sinclair series. And uh, for all of my novels, I pull upon my, my, not only my military experience, but my life experience. Uh, when you get inside the head of 
the protagonist, Garrett Sinclair, uh, he's, he's going through a lot of different processes in, in his life that uh, he's got a character arc through that story. And, you know, he's just lost his wife. He's, he's dealing with personal loss in a big way. And, and yet he's still got a function as a, a leader of uh, troops in combat. And uh, when I was in combat in Afghanistan and other places, I, I was always amazed at the uh, stories of every individual soldier and what they had to deal with on the home front and then what they had to deal with in their day-to-day -day job as they worked 24-7 to combat uh, terrorists and secure our liberties. It's really uh, quite a dilemma for for the you know tens, hundreds of thousands of soldiers that we have rotating through combat. And, and so as I think about that, uh, I, you know, I could not be more proud to have been associated with the men and women that serve our country. And as I write these stories, it's a way of sort of channeling that pride and, and integrating the layers of context for each individual character uh, into that. Uh, there, no character is based in my stories is based on any one real life character. Uh, it's it's more this synthetic uh, process of weaving in lots of different layers of feelings and emotions and ambitions and uh, faults and and virtues and and so forth. And it's fun for me. It's a, it's a process for me to. It's very cathartic uh, for me to complete a novel. I, I I bet. But I I am telling you, I don't think I've ever read a book that is packed with this much. And I don't know, there's lots of action, obviously, but the information that you put in there, if you pay attention to what you were describing, I got to tell you, it's really something. I, 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 my, I can't have been the first person to point this out, right? You're aware that, that's... Be more explicit. He will talk about weapons and strategies and and there's his style is such that he'll often all of a sudden toss off a policy go just like just like we did and, and he'll mention a very specific policy in Iraq or Iran or and and I'm, and if you're paying attention you will learn what these policies are and in there he also embeds an opinion in the in his sort of attitude about them but there but there but there's I mean in a couple of sentences there's just tons of information and then well, let me give you another example. This I don't want to divulge too much because it's 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 like I said, I want people to read this. But you have an opening sequence. Well, you you go back and forth in time a little bit, but the one sequence in the cave is is really wild, right. and it felt like you'd been through something like that before. Maybe not in a cave, but in something like that, right? Well, there are a lot of caves in Afghanistan, and and so uh, I I spent thirteen months of my life in Afghanistan leading troops, and I uh, went on a few missions with my troops, and I always felt like the yeah. good leaders go on missions. And uh, the the opening scene there that you're referencing uh, is um, uh, one that that sort of this uh, more creative. Uh, yeah, I, I've been in caves in Afghanistan, never in Iran, of course, uh, but. Uh, it's it's one where I visualize uh, a special mission with a general leading it, and one of the criticisms that I get, I, you know, I got a lot of praise for the for the novel, but as um, well, a general would never be out front like that. A general is supposed to be in the office and not on the front lines. And and my my comeback to that is, well, I went on missions with my troops. Uh, how uh, yeah. am I supposed to be? Uh, has our culture drew ossified so much that, 
you know, generals are in air conditioned offices and privates and sergeants are out in the muddy trenches. It's that that's World War One kind has of it? stuff. And has it? Yeah, I, I think it has to a certain degree, if I'm oh. getting that kind of feedback from some readers, yeah. because I, and, and, you know, there are a lot of good generals out there that are leading from the front. And mm. not that these are good generals, but there's been about 12 Russian generals killed in combat. So, you know, today's battle lines are drawn uh, such that. Uh, there is no front line. Uh, lines of communication get attacked all the time. Uh, that's where you'll find a lot of uh, command and control convoys. Senior leaders are in these command and control convoys and, and they get attacked. And, and frankly, they're targets, they're high value targets. So, uh, but, uh, you know, for me, it's fun to have this general leading this small team. Uh, never mind that James Bond was older than the general in my book, you know, but James Bond right. was able to, you know, fly on jet skis over, you know, frozen glaciers and still save the girl. Right. So, um, uh, but it, it's, it's, uh, gotten great reception, uh, the, the novel has. And, and, um, you know, for me, it, it's, a it's a, it's a real, uh, pleasure to write these novels. And I, every morning I get up and I'll, crank out about a thousand words. I'm, I'm already writing. Uh, I've turned in book 15. I'm going through those edits now for Macmillan. Got book 16. Wow. Um, um, I'm, I'm about 10,000 words into that. And these books are around 100,000 words, uh, each one. So at least, at least please give our general that uh, General Tata has created the same latitude that we give Ian. Tata. Tata, I beg your pardon. Tata for... Uh, that we give to Ian Fleming for a bond. I'd at least give him the same latitude that we give to Ian Fleming. How about that? <laughs> right. uh, so, That's all I'm asking for. <laughs> yeah. Um, but, but uh, Susan, to answer your question, I, I have, I can't even tell you how he describes some of this stuff, but I have explicit images in my head that were sort of surprising and they were so surprising. Right, let's talk about the cave again, since we've already divulged that scene. He talks about, you know, complex equipment he's using to go into the cave and what he's seeing and what that's like and what that feels like and what it smells like and all this stuff. And then you talk about this this um, cloth that you removed that looked like rock. And I thought, oh my God, of course they do things like that. And that what's behind it is these horrors. And the horrors are described in ways that extremely accurate, having seen a lot of dead bodies. I, I knew you'd seen stuff like this. And it was uh, described in a way that was just like, oh man, this is uh, where I'm in. <laughs> so I was in very quickly. Right. So there you go. Well, well done. Well, thank you. Thank you. And uh, I, I'm glad you're enjoying the book, uh, Drew. And um, uh, I'll, I'll tell you, the, the, um, I, I was doing a show. I think I mentioned this to you when we talked in Miami. But um, I, I mentioned that writing's cathartic for me. And uh, on my very first book, Sudden Threat, uh, I, I was doing a tour and I was still active duty at the time. I had already submitted my retirement papers to begin to transition. And uh, the army had given me permission to have this book come out. And, and so I, I was doing a LA nighttime, you know, Fraser Crane style talk show um, for an hour. And, and the host wanted to talk about uh, post-traumatic stress uh, disorder. And so I called the, chief of um she was the chief of army nursing and, and she was now then uh chief of the army resiliency program rhonda uh, cornum she was shot down behind enemy lines and desert storm um 
you know, the first uh, attack into Iraq and, and, uh, you know, went through some pretty horrible abuses as a POW. So if anybody knows anything about uh, uh, post-traumatic stress, she does. And, and I said, Hey, Rhonda, what, what should I talk about with uh, this uh, radio host? And, and she said, Tony, the first thing you do is don't call it a disorder. Call it, you know, there can be growth from post-traumatic stress. And uh, just like a bone breaks, if your mind breaks, uh, you can grow from that. You heal and grow and it's a process. And so don't don't call it disorder and, and make sure that, you know, that's one of the things that we're trying to get out there to, you know, the, the military community and, and, and uh, spouses and family members, because everybody's dealing with this. And, you know, at this time, Drew, we were, you know, having, you know, hundreds of casualties a week, people coming home. Uh, and caskets and people coming home with missing legs and arms and the, and the and the trauma was significant, uh, particularly in the military community. And 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 she said, Tony, you're doing one of the things that we are trying to coach, teach, mentor our soldiers to do, and that is find an outlet. Uh, you're writing these books, and and I imagine that you find that uh, somewhat uh, helpful for you. You've you've got that steam valve. Uh, what we're seeing with privates and sergeants and lieutenants and captains that lose their best friend or lose their squad mate or, or you know, uh, whomever that they're close to, uh, they they become brittle and they crack. So for every one casualty, we actually have two because the other one's not functional. So we're we're trying to help people find an outlet that that makes them more resilient, and, th- and that's why they called it the resiliency program. Maybe I will talk to her at some point. I would love that. I, I have found, I've worked with a lot of veterans, and the, the biggest problem, again, I, I like the construct that it's not a disorder because it is adaptive. It's how we survive in these situations, right. but it leaves an imprint on our autonomic nervous system. But much like a broken limb or something, you need help healing. And this is the same thing with, with PTSD, post-traumatic stress. Uh, you need help. And unfortunately, a lot of people avoid it. They push back from it. That's the biggest challenge in my experience with getting people yeah, ab- uh, more resilient. Yeah, absolutely. Well. Because there's so much stigma, Drew, associated with uh, particularly walking into Ward 4 in the hospital and everybody knows, okay, well, that's, uh, that's where all the mental health people are. That's where all the psychos go. And there's a stigma associated with that. Plus, um, is this going to hurt my promotion or is it going to you know, mm-hmm. uh, impact how people view me and, and the ability to do mm-hmm. my job. And that's why telehealth is so important with respect to being able to treat uh, veterans and, and others um, with, uh, with respect to this uh, post-traumatic stress and being able to do it more privately so people can get the help they need, but not risk uh, the, you know, the, uh, have the downside risk of career impact and that kind of thing. I want to pull out a specific quote and use it as a, uh, uh, what shall we say, a, a jumping off point. Uh, he's, he, your your um, lead character, whose name escapes me again, of course, yeah, um, is speaking to, Sinclair is talking to his counterpart, I forget where this is, is in Afghanistan, I think, uh, Parazad, am I getting that right? And he says, yeah, and uh, "We shall right meet again." Antagonist. Right, and, and but he, but but this one quote jumped out at me. It says, "We shall meet again." Your government is stupid and arrogant. Men like us will be required to confront each other on the bio- battlefield 
It gives me no great pleasure, but we each have our duties. It's a very interesting quote, right? To sort of look at the enemy's point of view, think about them as somebody doing a job. You revealed in that quote what the enemy thinks of us, probably. Um, tell, tell me more about that. Yeah. And can we use that? Can we use that insight to help understand the Ukraine-Russia situation in some way? Well, I, I think it's really interesting that uh, we we tend to look um, at uh, all of the world through an American lens, and it's that old adage: if you if you see every problem as a uh, 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 if if all you've got is a hammer, you see every problem as a nail, and and yeah. it's the same kind of thing where. Um, having been all over the world, having been in so many different conflict zones uh, from Panama to Afghanistan to Kosovo uh, to uh, you know, South Korea, Philippines, uh, all over, everybody's got a unique vantage point. Everybody has uh, wants and needs and hopes and, and uh, understanding and respecting cultures all around the world are important. And uh, when, you, when, you're, when you have an adversary, uh, you have to understand that adversary, or, or you should try at least, uh, so that you can better understand what they're trying to achieve, how they might act, uh, how you might be able to uh, convince them. You know, you could you could play this out on the world stage right now with uh, Putin and Zelensky and others, and and all the chess moves going on there. But you have to understand how others see you as well. So because they may make decisions based upon those perceptions. And when you get into military operations, you might have deception operations, you might have uh, other types of information operations to, that you want to target that enemy uh, and, and influence them in a certain way. And so in that exchange from Perizod, who's the antagonist in the book, uh, to Sinclair, who's the protagonist, uh, they, they are commanders of the same kinds of units, uh, Sinclair in the United States, Perizod in Iran. And uh, Perizod is the Lion of Tabas. Uh, and uh, Tabas is the town. Uh, I don't know if you remember, but during the Jimmy Carter, Carter era, um, we, we attempted a military rescue of the hostages that were in uh, being held in the embassy in Tehran. And that, that military operation was a disaster. And, uh, you know, uh, it was called uh, uh, Eagle Claw. And it, the, there was, there was a, a refueling operation going on uh, near the town of Tabas, Iran. A C-130 airplane had flown in there and landed on a dirt road. And helicopters had flown off of an a aircraft carrier uh, into uh, a refuel at this you know, nameless spot called Desert One. And uh, while they were refueling, sand got kicked up in the air and one helicopter struck another. And inside of the airplane was nothing but giant fuel bladders that were pumping gas for all these helicopters that were coming in to pick up the uh, hostages. And there was a giant explosion. And so I fictionalize part of that and say this, a little kid watched his father get get burned in that explosion, and that is Darius Perizon, the Lion of Tabas, the, 
the next day, and, and this is all fiction now. Previously, it was true. Um, all, all of the uh, nonfiction aspects of Desert One are, are of course, real. Uh, and then I fictionalize it and have Darius Perizide, his little kid, watching all of this happen. And the Ayatollah comes out the next day to bury his father and, and anoints him as the Lion of Tabas. And that is, mm. that is uh, the title of the book, Chasing the Lion, is, is uh, uh, Sinclair has this mission now to stop Perizade from doing this horrible thing that you see in the cave in the very first chapter uh, that he's yeah. going to uh, then import to the United States. So that's, that's where that comes from. Incredible. Uh, I, I, that, that whole chapter had a, I, I believe, a deep impression, left a deep impression on the country and particularly on my generation. I remember I was a senior in college and I stepped out to my, uh, out of my dorm room that morning and saw an above the fold full page picture of the debris and it was on the Boston Globe all over you know the desert floor and like oh my god you know what and this was and this was day 180 or something for the hostages we couldn't get them out or it was just really a yeah. really a and you know inf inflation was out of control and Car carter was sort of unclear what he was doing being a nice guy and all but at all not at all clear what was going to happen really it was a really kind of a people talk trying to compare this present moment with that, I, I feel like that was a darker period for this country. Is am I on to anything there, or do you disagree with that? Uh, I, I, well, I think there are parallels for sure. Rising inflation, uh, wayward, in my view, foreign policy, world uh, spinning out of control a little bit. I think there are some parallels. Um, obviously, some of that attenuated or exacerbated by technology and big big tech, big media, etc. And, and I remember that image also. I was a, a senior at West Point, uh, and mm. uh, well, I was a junior when when that happened. Then became a senior, obviously, the following year. And uh, the it was this black cross against the tan sand of the desert because everything just burned in place. And as you call it, the debris field was was astonishing, and, and it was yeah. real shock. And then um, the Olympics were that winter. And I'll never forget, you know, the U.S. hockey team. Um, oh yeah, uh, yeah, coming in and and defeating Russia, and uh, we were huddled. We had a, a TV about the size of the um, MacBook I'm, I'm staring at right now. And yeah, yeah, that's right. That's what I watched it. Down in, <laughs> yeah, yeah. hundred of us were yeah. down in the day room. Um, and because there, we weren't allowed to have TVs in our barracks room, and no, I said, "Well, we man, the luxury!" Couldn't even imagine and, that. And I, <laughs> the patriotism was just like frothy, and and then yeah. you know Reagan comes in as president. The next day, the hostages yeah. are released. Four hundred forty-four days. Those hostages drew, flew into Stuart Anderson Air Force Base, and then were bussed down to West Point. To spend their first two weeks of reintegration with their family, and so wow. as as they came there, we were all lined up on the side of the road to receive them, yeah. and and it was just this um, unbelievable experience. And after two weeks of them getting reintegrated with their families, they put them on buses. We had to form up as cadets in in our formation, and they drove the buses real slowly through 
our formation. We were all standing there at, uh, you know, present arms and the Marines and the buses were standing up, saluting us back. There wasn't a dry eye in that formation. Uh, the pride, the, uh, and, and so when I think about that shift from Carter to Reagan and, and just the perception of strength, the perception of, of, uh, doing what you say and saying what you do, um, there, there's something to that. And I think as, uh, you know, I don't want to get political on, on the show unless you want me to, but, uh, the, the, uh, where we find ourselves now, there's this perception of weakness. And, and uh, you know, after Afghanistan and all that went wrong with the withdrawal there, uh, our, our enemies around the world see uh, that uh, we, we, we had a really incompetent execution of that. And, and uh, we have not properly accounted for it. We just kind of stuck with the narrative and, and the big tech, big media tailwinds behind a particular party uh, make it so they don't really have to account for it because they're not held accountable in the press. And so they can just kind of get, go, you know, get along and go along and not have to concern themselves with it. And that's, that's the part that bothers me as a soldier for three decades and public servant and education and state government and transportation and all that. And all that I've given and millions of other people have given to make this country better and what it what it is today and then to have that sort of um disrespected through senior government action i i don't uh, uh that's that's discouraging and and it so it does harken back to the 1979-1980 era but it's sort of reverse we went i think from uh, a projection of strength uh to a projection of weakness and so uh, we've got three more years of uh, watching this unfold, and, and we'll see what happens. Yeah, I just keep thinking. Uh, don't you think the Ukrainians would have loved all that equipment? Think they could maybe half of that yeah. equipment. Think they would have liked that? Yeah. Wouldn't that have been nice for yeah. them to have some of that equipment uh, that we paid for, yeah. that, that I bought and you bought? Now I'll tell you what, Drew. I, I have a um, Mark Pazlowski was a company mate of mine. Uh, he. He was the captain of the volleyball team, 1981 West Point, um, my classmate. And he left Wall Street in 2014, and uh, he was Ukrainian. And the first party I went to after graduation was uh, to uh, Paz, as we called him, Paz's Ukrainian party a mile outside the gate of West Point. And um, I, I, did, I didn't make it to the rest of my events for, the, for that day because they were pretty crazy. Um, just, uh, you know, one, wonderful people. And so Mark leaves what, uh, Wall Street in 2014 and goes over and joins the Ukrainian army as a company commander. Mm. Uh, he wanted, this was after the Maidan riots. If, if, uh, you know, a little bit of, you know, the, the uh, president at the time had an offer from the European Union to, except uh, you know, roughly $800 million in an entree into the European Union. Putin offered, I wanna say 5 billion, I, I probably got that number wrong, but it's you know, give or take a billion. Uh, and to cheapen the uh, natural gas uh, prices to Russia. And he, he took that deal instead of the European Union deal. And so the centrists 
within Ukraine rioted because the president had uh, Lukashenko had had um, uh, made a deal on toward made a deal with Putin. And Mm. and so Mark goes over there and fights for Ukraine and was killed by Russian soldiers, soldiers. And um, that's the passion that these people have. Uh, not a day goes by today, particularly now, that I don't think of Paz and our friendship and, and everything that we, you know, did for four years at, at West Point, living right next to each other. And, and uh, you know, we're, I have a West Point uh, uh, text string now, and we, you know, we're constantly referencing Mark. And I, you know, I, I post a little bit about social media, but today, you know, everything's so transactional. It, it's hard to sustain any any kind of conversation about anything meaningful uh, because, you know, everything is moving so fast uh, in today's world. Yeah. Yeah. I, people don't, I mean, I'm Ukrainian descent. There, there was a huge diaspora out of Ukraine and Belarus, the turn of the 20th century. So there's a lot of people from that region in this country. And uh, most people were not aware of that. And, and there's a weird, um, blurring of uh, ethnicities and lines you know uh, nationalist lines and stuff I, I was always raised that i was russian uh because that's what a lot of the ukrainian and belarusians sort of called themselves for a long time there and yet, yet they were very quick to leave when stalin came around <laughs> very quick all right yeah so, well uh, uh now that you've declared now that you've declared that uh, you you may be russian i expect a black helicopter to come swooping in here during this Oh, that's that's after we wrap up. After, after we wrap up, I would never <laughs> dream to do it while we're talking. <laughs> In fact, I was thinking of plutonium uh, poisoning. That's really where I was going. It's a little easier. It won't that be directly related to me then? Oh my god! But, but help us understand. I'm hoping you're willing to tell us today a little bit about making sense of what's going on over there. I don't. Let me just tell you my philosophical point of view on this. Is that. I've been so pissed off at everyone suddenly becoming an expert in infectious diseases and virology for two years, having heated positions about medications or syndromes that they just learned how to pronounce that I may have been using for 30 years or dealing with for 30 years. They just learned the words and now they're an expert. It makes me insane. And my fear is we're seeing something similar as it pertains to military operations. And and I don't want to participate in any of that. So so I've been sort of staying out of it, but I have been trying to make sense of it in my own mind. Can you help me make sense of what's going on over there? Well, well, sure, I can certainly try. Um, Thank you. The the macro strategic politics um, are, are... you know, Putin has an economy, it's uh, primarily oil-based, and uh, he he had pipelines in uh, uh, Ukraine, and he had pipeline, he was building the Nord Stream 2 going through um, into Germany. And uh, uh, when uh, Trump was in office, he um, signed off on legislation that shut down uh, any receptivity of the Nord Stream 2, and they quit building uh, the Nord Stream 2 pipeline. Um, and he, uh, Putin was somewhat reliant on um, pi- pipelines through Ukraine. Uh, when Biden came in, he overturned uh, Trump's order um, uh, and, and the legislation that uh, 
shut down the receiving end uh, of the Nord Stream 2. And so Nord Stream 2 gets turned back on uh, as soon as Biden does his thing. And uh, he, uh, Putin doesn't need anything in Ukraine anymore from a pipeline perspective. And now he can go in and destroy whatever he wants. And, and Putin's big issue with Ukraine is that uh, NATO has done such an effective job of gobbling up the former Warsaw Pact nations to attempt to uh, reshape the geopolitics of Europe into sort of a democratic capitalist image, um, not sort of, in, into that image. Um, from, and it's really more about economics than, than about politics, that uh, Putin's concern that Ukraine was next. Uh, and Belarus is, uh, you know, would, would be the last to go if ever. And, and, but everything else around there basically is NATO now, former Warsaw Pact from Romania, the Slovakia, Czech Republic, uh, Poland, uh, Latvia, Estonia, etc. So, um, you know, he he sees this um, threat against his border, and I can tell you, you know, NATO's never going to attack Russia, you know, unless he declares war on 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 NATO nations. Uh, but mm -hmm. uh, so it's it's a psychological thing with um, uh, Putin, and and it's just. I, I don't know. Uh, you probably know about this. Uh, you know, I, I've read a lot of Nietzsche and the beast with red cheeks and, the, and you know, the psycho that, um, you know, gets embarrassed and he has to win. And that's, I think, kind of what we're dealing with right now. And mm -hmm. and uh, he's this megalomaniac that, um, you know, is, is stomping his foot on the world stage saying, pay attention to me. I can do this. I see the weakness. And I, I see that um, this administration is, is um, you know, got the, enough di division in it. And frankly, Drew, we're divided as a country, and and the the war that's been going on within our country um, in the cyber domain uh, is is very real. And if you accept that there are different domains of warfare, uh, whether it's land or air or sea, space, cyber, uh, then we are in a serious civil war right now. Uh, we're very, very divided. Uh, the the uh, bell curves used to overlap sort of in the middle. You had center left, center right. Now it's sort of the dumbbell approach where you got hard left, hard right. And if you're in that vast wasteland in the middle, uh, you, you don't have anybody advocating for you. You can't advocate for anything that, you know, uh, and, and, and this war is a really good example. Because yeah, you, what you've got is you got people that, uh, for whatever reason, you know, hate Putin, and and Putin deserves to be hated. He's a bad guy, uh, and and then you have other people suspicious of well, if those people on the on the far left are hating Putin, then I better not hate Putin. You know, that's kind of where mm -hmm. we are today, um, mm -hmm. psychologically, mm -hmm. with social media going around, and and what you you've got this. Um, you know, reaction to uh, world events that, as you said, many people really don't understand. And it's it's a Putin invaded Ukraine. Ukraine's not at fault here, uh, from my point of view. 
And they're defending and they're fighting. Well, I commanded Ukrainian soldiers in Kosovo. I had a battalion of them under my, and Polish uh, soldiers under my command. Very good troops, uh, very good troops. Uh, they'll fight passionately. Uh, you know, my Mark Pazowski story is one that um, I think embodies uh, the passion of the Ukrainians. And you see that uh, with Zelensky's uh, great leadership on the ground. Now, think about this, Drew. The very first reaction of the United States, the White House, to the invasion of uh, Ukraine by Russia was to offer Zelensky a ride out of Ukraine. That's right. verified, bona fide, right? That was the very yeah. first reaction. So think about that. And, and, and think about if you know, the previous president had done any of the stuff that's happening right now. Uh, he would be impeached three, four, five, six more times. Because, you know, if he, went, if he hadn't, if he had opened up the Nord Stream 2 receptivity again, it, it would have. Oh, my God. You know, yeah, right? It, 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 oh, you're in yeah, Putin's I, pocket. Uh, I'm not, crazy. I'm apolitical. And I'm apolitical, but, you know, I always believe in my president. I try. But I did notice that when we changed from Republican to Democrat, all of a sudden, everything had to be the opposite. Like, they didn't think well, it out. And, that's like, what, that's the borders what, came down in Mexico, what, and then all these horrible that's things That's what the happened. general is saying. And, I, and, I've all, and I've actually wondered if some of the insane policies we had around COVID were, were the same thing. Trump said, don't, don't worry about it. So we got to extra worry oh, about it. Sure, we got to close sure. everything down. Right. And, and it was because no I kept asking, where did, this where did this come from? Where did these ideas come from even? This is not an infectious disease doctor's idea of how to deal with a, a, a pandemic. And so it was all very strange for yeah, me. And I think it's still that, but be, I think it's settling a little bit. I think it's sort of dampening. International relationship and war should be something that when you become president, response? you know be. what you're doing. That's well, why you get voted to be president. The COVID came up. Nobody knew what to do. But no, they did. But there should be we should have past experience that helps us understand what to do moving forward and and that putin was on the you know he was well, coming up i mean joe biden's been up. in the government for 50 years right he, yeah he, he knows but why did they have to change everything because it was on the, the that's, right did that's it differently what we're into now that's what the general's pointing out General, it, it makes us weak yeah, but right. um yeah. i you know i just get really heated up because i don't i don't know a lot about it but I know a lot of people just don't want to talk about politics. They don't want to know what's going on. They just hide their heads in the sand. And and I, I'm the kind of person where I just want to know everything. So, well, to that end, uh, General, I, I've heard other commentators on television remark that the fact that the Ukraine hung on to the end of last, it was I, probably around Wednesday or Thursday of last week, I saw a military commentator saying, this is extraordinary. This is fascinating. Let's see if they can hang on till the end of the week. And now here we are very nearly a week subsequent. How do you interpret what's going on over there? Is this just a stepwise approach to tightening the noose that Putin is just going to continue to pursue? Or is there really some meaningful resistance going on there? I think or there's both. meaningful resistance, and, and I think both. And, and I think uh, Putin's yeah. got a set piece plan. I, I, if if we had a map up in front of us, you know, you think of uh, Ukraine somewhat as a football shape, uh, and and mm -hmm. midway down the half of the uh, football there is the Dnieper River. The Dnieper River is the fourth largest river 
in, in Europe, and, and it's a mile wide in some locations. Uh, Kiev is west of the Dnieper River. Uh, obviously, Russia is east of Ukraine and the Dnieper River. So to get to Kiev, they had to come up through Belarus and down um, uh, past, past the Dnieper River where they weren't contested by Ukrainian forces in Belarus and then drop down and pressure the command and control center of, of Ukraine and Kiev. And while they were trying, are trying to move uh, from east to west and, and south to north up through the ports. And what they want to do is control at a minimum that eastern half of Ukraine. Uh, they, I, I'm sure their entire plan or their plan is to uh, seize the entire country. And, and it certainly appears, you know, he's rocketing everywhere. He's dropping bombs. He's, he's got troops uh, everywhere. Uh, you know, the reports I'm hearing. And, and one thing that we can be sure of, there's an old combat adage that, that the first report is usually wrong. And, mm. and that should be held true and doubly true because you have two masters of misinformation, actually three if you count our government, but um, mm -hmm. you have Russia. Mm -hmm. um, master of uh, misdirection, misinformation, disinformation. You have Ukraine, who's equally good, if not better than Russia. And then you have our government that lies to us every day, um, you know, about certain things. Um, and so what can we believe? Because there's not a, a whole lot of reporters in there. You saw the Fox News team uh, cameraman and, and uh, Stringer got killed there um, and, and a mm -hmm. reporter was wounded. Um, and so uh, we don't, when the U.S. Army goes to war, we have embed journalists that are wearing body armor and they're in the trenches with our sergeants and captains. And you're getting pretty good resolution on what's happening uh, here uh, intentionally. I think there's very few journalists. Uh, and and mm. I, I use the term journalists loosely because most of them are operatives now. But I think the ones who, who cowboy up and go into uh, war zones like this, they're tried and true people trying to get to the truth of the story. The others um, are trying to spin, whether it's hard left or hard right, and try to you know, figure out how to tell the story through a different lens. But the people in the country right now are trying to give us accurate information, which is really, really hard. And, and so it's hard to understand, you know, if 10,000 Russians have been have been killed as the Ukrainians claim. Maybe, maybe, you know, I, you know, there's been no evidence of that, but you know, it's, it's a good talking point. Have 12 generals really been killed? Russia's acknowledged four or five, but maybe 12 have been killed. Even four or five is a big deal, you know, because generals yeah. uh, are up there commanding the, the troops. And so you see the map there and you see Kiev just to the right of the V is the Dnieper river and the, 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 the blue arrow there. And, and so yeah. you see what they're trying to do is take that eastern third of um, of the country, and and they've come down through Belarus to to hit uh, Kiev uh, because that they were able to get west of the river. And and when I saw that Drew um, pre invasion, I said they're coming down to Kiev to try to put a stranglehold on that, cut off the command and control, and then move across the country. What they what they didn't anticipate was the stiff resistance, the insurgency, sort of the revolutionary war style fight that they're getting with Ukrainians popping up out of um, you know 
swamps and trench lines and 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 that kind of thing. So it's it's um, you know it's playing out here on the world stage. Who would have thought? And uh, you know, twenty twenty two, we'd be on the precipice of World War Three. But I think that's where we find ourselves. Well, I, I want you to talk a little bit more about that uh, in a second. What I'm going to do is take a quick break here. I have a quick question, too. And we'll be back with Susan's question yeah. as well. We're here with Brigadier General, retired uh, Anthony Tata, and we'll be right back after this. Let's talk about our friends at Hydrolyte. I can't say enough about Hydrolyte. You hear me talk about them all the time. It gets me through workouts and medical procedures and colonoscopies. And COVID, it absolutely contributed to my recovery from COVID. Hydration is key to feeling healthy, and there's never been a time when that could be more important. We're in the height of cold flu season. Every headache has got you testing for COVID. Staying hydrated can keep the questionable symptoms at bay, and there's nothing better than Hydrolyte to get it done. Taking their hydration formula one step further, now there is Hydrolyte Plus Immunity. It starts with their fast-absorbing electrolytes and adds a host of great ingredients. Plus, each single-serve, easy-pour drink mix contains 1,000 milligrams of vitamin C and 300 milligrams of elderberry extract. Hydrolyte Plus Immunity comes in convenient, easy-pour powder sticks that rapidly dissolve in water to make a great-tasting drink that is a 75% less sugar than your typical sports drink. It uses all-natural flavors. It's gluten-free, dairy-free, caffeine-free, non-GMO, and even vegan. Hydrolyte Plus Immunity is also now available in ready-to-drink bottles at the Walmart next to the pharmacy, or as always, you can find it by visiting hydrolyte.com slash Dr. Drew. That is H-Y-D-R-A-L-Y-T-E dot com slash Dr. Drew. And be sure to use that code Dr. Drew 25 at checkout for a special discount. I'm back with Brigadier General Anthony Tata. The new book is Chasing the Lion. You've heard the premise of the book, The uh, Lion anointed as such in Iran following the related to the botched uh, attempt at saving the hostages and uh, just an extraordinary uh, it's just packed with, with detail and descriptions and information and action I recommend it most highly uh, as we were leaving the last segment we sort of tilted at the notion of uh, another world war Susan you had a question before we go down that, that rabbit hole well I don't know my geography very well. But, I'm looking at it. But like, you know, the Crimea, the the Black Sea and the Crimea is sort of the water areas around them. And there's a lot of neighboring countries that are down in that area. And I was wondering, I, you know, how, how they're, how they're feeling. You know, well, we what, know Poland's freaking out, which is next to Ukraine. Yeah, but that's Moldova not, is but I mean, thought like to be going another towards target. Greece, like down down towards Turkey, across the Black Sea. Yeah. I don't think what do we what do we say, General? Is there much concern down there? Well, so you've got Romania, that's a NATO nation now. You've got uh, Poland, yeah. and then north of that you've got Latvia. Um, uh, around the the Black Sea, um, of course, in twenty fourteen they did uh, Right, Russia sees Crimea and a little piece of the eastern, uh, far eastern uh, Ukraine, and uh, we did nothing um, in response to that. So again, uh, the double standard of the media uh, has um, you know projected onto Trump what actually Obama Biden did and what Biden is uh, allowing to happen now, um, if if you want to call it that. Um, and and so further down, you've you've got Moldova, you've got uh, uh, you know um, Azerbaijan, I think, and some some other. Yes. Um, uh, yeah. So 
Kosovo. Yeah, Montenegro. Kosovo. Yeah, I'm in the wrong sea. I'm, I was in the Caspian. Um, like I'm not looking at a map right now. Like that's like so, right next. That's all right next to Ukraine. Mm. Yeah. I mean, so I, I just they, wonder. Go ahead. Uh, yeah, no, I, I think that um, Putin is most interested in the countries that can help him the most. And Ukraine obviously uh, serves as a big buffer. Um, it's not a NATO nation. He's not violating. He's not going to trigger a violation of Article 5, which is an attack against one and is an attack against all of the North Atlantic Treaty. And uh, so I think he's going to be very careful about that uh, because watching the performance of his army, uh, he, um, uh, you know, they're not, uh, in theory, they're not doing great. They're, I don't think it's going as he had hoped. I think he wanted to move much quicker, blitzkrieg, shock and awe, all those, um, you know, verbs. And um, the what what you're really seeing here is a, plotting effort to seize a country it's tough even when we you know bolted into uh, baghdad um out of kuwait uh you know we got there but we fought for you know several more years i mean that never stopped and you know this could be very much the same thing and and so as he gets think think about the historical examples of the inverse of Napoleon going to Moscow or Germany going to Moscow in World War II, they, they got destroyed because of lines of communication. And so lines of communication define this fight. Lines of communication are how you get resupply in, they're how you uh, move troops around the battlefield, they're how you survive. And Ukraine has what we call internal lines of communication because it's their country, they're fighting from inside out. and uh, Russia has external lines of communication. They're having to come in and and penetrate the terrain the Ukrainians know. And so, my point for mentioning this in relation to your question is that the they're they're going to get consumed in in Ukraine and their their willingness to do some more folly uh, south or north or east or west uh, is uh, will be uh, tempered by the pace at which they move in Ukraine and the success that they have in Ukraine. So um, I think he probably wants to finger in the eye of uh, um, uh, NATO, uh, but at the at the same time, and, the, and there you've got the, the map up there, I, I think that, uh, yeah, Moldova could be a target, um, you know, Romania, uh, Bulgaria, they're all, all these former Warsaw Pact nations uh, that, that border Ukraine are, are potential um, targets. And, and more important to me, uh, and should be to this country, is not so much is it a target of Putin, but can some rogue general or even Putin uh, order a strike, conduct a strike, that goes into Moldova, that goes into Romania, that goes into uh, Poland, or goes into Slovakia, and actually does some kind of damage or harm. And, uh, you know, in my former position as uh, the policy guy at the Pentagon, uh, I'm sure my old team is working real hard on what are those thresholds? What are those red lines? What do we consider an attack? 
uh, against uh, NATO that would trigger Article 5 that would cause NATO to go to war with Russia and potentially trigger a nuclear conflict. Because right now you, you've got a, a guy that is at least uh, saber rattling that he's prepared to do it. And who, who's to say he wouldn't? I think a lot of it's sort of a, a bluff in the psych game against Biden and, and, and uh, the you know, national security team in the, in the White House. But you, know, you, you just never know. I mean, he could be a madman. It's sort of how a lot of the world saw Trump. They didn't mess with Trump because they thought he was a little bit crazy. <laughs> and, you know, there's something to be said for that. Well, you know what? I'm just thinking about like, like how the Nazis came in and then the communists came in to the smaller countries and just sort of set up camp and made that like we're in charge of everything, you know, so that they would could refresh their troops or have, you know, a place to surround the area that's destroyed. And, and, I don't know. I don't know how many of these are, if any of those Hungary's, Serbia, Slovenia, or, or Montenegro are part of the NATO pack. I know that, I know that Moldova is, is neutral. So, but I just, I wonder like how I would, if I live there, I'd be like, Oh crap. Like what's next? You know, um, right. only from well, experience I mean, of a, looking at how, go ahead. That, that's a really good point you make, Susan. I, I mean, um, do they just drive into the Moldova and set up camp? And what happens then? Um, uh, do do they, you know, just drive into Romania? And and this is where NATO and and the um, foreign policy team and and the DOD from the United States can can try to get in front of something. They've been behind everything. Um, uh, you know, they were behind in Afghanistan. They were behind here. We should have been talking about this three, four months ago, high-level meetings between, should have been a summit between Biden and Putin to try to avoid this, if, if not, uh, you know, the, uh, you know, God forbid, vice presidents or, you know, whatever, um, the, the um, uh, you yeah, know, the seriousness with which this administration is taking this um, is reflected by their use of this crisis um, to brief TikTok influencers to blame the gas prices on Putin. That, right. that to me is just insulting and should be insulting to everybody uh, in this country that we've got a potential world war nuclear conflict uh, happening and they're focused on how do we transactionally get through um, uh, how do we transactionally blame Putin for high gas prices when gas prices have been high anyway? And, and, and if you want to lower gas prices, open the Keystone XL pipeline, uh, approve more permits and, and quit fighting with the oil industry and, and open up the gates toward back toward energy independence. We were a net exporter of energy in, in the previous administration. And the energy independence is really, truly tied to national security. And, and that's that's something that that this dogma that that um, this administration is adhering to uh, is uh, really impacting um, uh, American citizens every day. And there's this this gap um, between the dogma and and reality. And and, uh, you know, those of us out here in reality, uh, you know, the, the dogma doesn't do anything for us talking about 
a future where nobody drives a, a, a you know a gasoline based car. Uh, sure, that'll happen one day, but you don't have to you know you know crank it down on us right now. Um, you can you can right. ease your way into it when they're more affordable, right? So, and I thought all of that was going just fine, uh, but they're trying to accelerate. Yeah, and I think people are now more aware of that connection between uh, energy independence and national security. And uh, to explain what uh, the general is talking about is the White House had eight or 12 TikTok influencers over to brief them on how to discuss inflation as Putin's problem and just this ridiculous political, pol I mean, really ridiculous marketing stuff that uh, if you if you think about it, gets kind of scary. I'm, I'm hoping that that was just the idea of some underling at the White House and not, you know, not uh, people that should be occupied with other things. But God knows it is not exactly the message you want going out into the world. But one last thing I'll ask you about the, the conflict in Ukraine. And just just if you don't mind, and it may and you may want to not answer this, and that, that's certainly reasonable. But based on your experience, how, how do you – because, we you know, when you've been through – I can tell from writing your book, you you would have an instinct about how this, from reading your book rather, that that how this is going to go. What what does your instinct tell you how this is likely to play out? Yeah, so I I think um, uh, Putin's not going to make the progress he wants to make. I think the West is kind of waiting to see if the Ukrainians have a shot. It, it looks like they do, and so I think they're making decisions about resourcing based upon the likelihood of that that resourcing being successful and. And so this announcement yesterday of uh, new drones uh, and, and Stinger missiles and Javelins, all, all very effective weapon systems that I've worked with all, all my career. Uh, you know, I, I, I see other nations supporting that. I see a, um, a rallying around um, uh, supporting Ukrainian army, uh, that, you know, abetting or um, uh, helping to um, allay the humanitarian crisis in, in uh, Poland and elsewhere and all the other neighboring nations. And uh, some ossification maybe east of the Dnieper River um, in a zone of separation. One of the things I've been calling for in the, the many Fox News and Newsmax and other venue um, segments I've been doing is a um, uh, a zone of separation a la Dayton Peace Accords. If you remember uh, when, when the Serbs attacked Bosnia and Herzegovina and Croatia and later Kosovo, uh, it was very much the same thing. Artillery, tanks, helicopters, jets. Uh, and uh, I, you know, I went to Bosnia in late 95 uh, uh, through Germany as an advance party. I was with the 82nd Airborne Division helping out U.S. Army Europe figure out how they're going to get from Germany to Hungary to Croatia and into Bosnia, and um, you know what what I saw there in the in the Balkans is that uh, Europeans uh, have have a memory uh, um, like like no other of, of warfare and what what uh, the wars have done over the centuries uh, to their people, and they remember those dates. Uh, that significant events happened. And, and they also have an incredible ability to help one another. And so all these refugees that are flowing back and forth across different borders uh, are being uh, 
subsumed into society there. And I saw that in Ma North Macedonia and Kosovo when I was a commander in the 101st Airborne there. And I had the Polish Ukrainian battalion uh, uh, working for me among others. And so I see uh, what I'd like to see um, is the same kind of energy that Clinton and Wes Clark had uh, to set up the Dayton Peace Accords uh, coming out of uh, this team. Uh, you know, uh, as, as Putin uh, feels that he's, his progress is slowing and slowing and slowing, uh, maybe he's, he's got to uh, accept some kind of a deal. Uh, and there's, there's a maxim, I think it's Sun Tzu or, you know, one of the famous dead, dead generals, um, is always leave your enemy a golden bridge. And so uh, one of the concerns I have with all this uh, social media um, hammering of, of people that even talk about a rational solution for uh, Ukraine and Russia that doesn't include, you know, wiping Russia off the map or killing, you know, whatever insanity and uh, is out there is you, you've got to have an option that if Russia is not doing well and they appear not to be doing well, you don't want him to feel like a bay, a cornered animal baying in the corner. Uh, you've got yeah. to, he's got to have a trap door out of there uh, because that yeah. then brings a nuclear option in. So hopefully a zone of separation, yeah. a, a divided uh, Ukraine of sorts and some kind of peace resolution and maybe an international peacekeeping force. Well, thank you for that assessment. Uh, now, th to finish up here, um, a lot of my Restream folks and uh, Caleb behind the, the curtain here has questions about... <laughs> there we go. Caleb, maybe you want to ask this question. I, I'm not sure what uh, General Tata's relationship is with this stuff, but um, do you know? Yeah. 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 Yes. Uh, so a lot of the question, a lot of stuff, and I know right. this is part of your book as well, are, uh, questions about MK Ultra and government experiments and things that are, you know, in the history that we are now aware of now, but obviously weren't aware of many years ago. So I wondered if you had any insight into the whole MK Ultra program or could provide any answers for anybody, the questions that they're having in the comments here. And, and let me say, in, I have a addition, little, I've been, go ahead, General, please. No, no, go ahead, Drew, go ahead. I was going to say, I, I've had a relationship with the Kentucky uh, program, you know, the the, uh, the addiction program in Kentucky is where they did a lot of those experiments. They were doing all kinds of interesting things there on prisoners. Uh, and uh, they discovered how to treat opiate withdrawal as a result. The, the concept of addiction was developed at the uh, Kentucky farm, I think they called it. But isn't that where a lot of the MKUltra stuff happened too? It, it, it is. And in addition to chasing the lion, um, I would recommend reading a book called Poisoner in Chief. And it's oh, about yeah. the the head of the, and it's from Sam Martin's Press, my publisher. Um, so I'm fine recommending it. Um, it's it's uh, about the head of the MK Ultra program. And uh, he was this uh, chemist, uh, weird guy, but he was an icon in CIA circles and guys like Dulles and others who had been CIA directors, you know, they gave this guy free reign. And post-World War II, the psychology was that, um, you know, it's kind of like the Sputnik. If the Russians get to it first, then we're going to be behind and the Russians can wipe us off the map. And so coming out of the Korean War, there were 22 Air Force pilots that had been captured by the Chinese. And when that ended, 
the prisoner exchange happened, those 22 pilots didn't want to be uh, repatriated to the United States. They wanted to stay in China. And the conclusion of the CIA was that the Chinese have figured out mind control because there's no reason that those 22 pilots would all want to stay in China. They all must be under some kind of mind control. And uh, the U.S. Was, had already gone to the Nuremberg trials and, and elsewhere and, and lobbied to not have some of the more um, uh, experienced German doctors uh, uh, executed or tried, uh, and, and they uh, hired them and began running experiments in safe houses in Heidelberg and other places. And, and likewise in Japan with Hirohito's uh, folks, uh, they did the same thing. Jap and the Jap there's not a whole lot written about it, but what I've read about the Japanese uh, experimentation on humans is just unbelievable. And so uh, our CIA underwrote uh, this experimentation and outsourced it to Germany, uh, and, and Japan, and mm. uh, they uh, discovered LSD as part of this and then began experimenting with it here in the United States. And uh, that poisoner chief lays out that entire MKUltra um, background. It's a fascinating uh, book. And it was so fascinating, I built a whole fiction novel around the concept of mind control, some kind of drug and technology, a techno drug, uh, where the, the poison uh, opens your mind a little bit uh, and, and you see different things inside your phone that perhaps are being sent there uh, from some, some other uh, source. And so, and you're being told to do things. And so how many of us are always looking down at our phone? I, you know, I'll be walking in Manhattan. Wow. And, you know, everybody yeah, me will be just staring at their phone. Bumping I think 50% of and, the know, country's already under that. Yeah, right. they are already yeah, exactly. they've already figured it out without the LSD. It's it comes on our screens all the time. No, I'm and I'm being yeah, I'm being funny, but I'm not. I mean, I really think that I'm certain we're doing stuff to other and certainly multiple countries we know. Well, you mentioned cyber warfare, isn't that what some of what you're talking yeah. about? That other countries are meddling with right. us in addition to our conflicts between ourselves. They're amplifying right. that conflict, right? Yeah, exactly. You know what? I'm, exactly I'm going to interject something really quick, too, just because I have three millennials living in my house. And they, one was a history major at school. But um, um, Jordan asked me, you know, all these people are dying in the Ukraine. Why aren't we going in there? Mm -hmm. And I said, well, because if there's a world war, uh, a lot of things happen. <laughs> it, it, it's a lot more people that can die, you mm -hmm. know, it, and basically the borders will shift and, and uh, the other countries will jump in and start attacking the countries that they don't like. And then America will have to go over there and help because they have their armed, armed forces there. And, and he, he didn't really understand how we can just sit and watch this horrible tragedy happen and how we're just sitting on the borders. And it's something that I, I understand because I know World War, I mean, I was a history major, but I know World War changes everything and it's, it's a big thing. And I, I know I'm saying this at the end and this is like a whole podcast in itself, but <laughs> could you just explain 
what your interpretation of World War would be. So, so, so I guess what, what she's asking is, what is the, the modern domino theory? Uh, the, or do we even get to the dominoes before there's a nuclear exchange, is what I would wonder. I'll, I'll let you answer that. Yeah, well, I, I, that's, um, I think you did a great job, Susan, in um, explaining that. Um, the, you know, the, I, I had a friend call me up and, and she was talking about uh, uh, this. Why aren't we doing something? Why aren't we doing something? And, you know, she's got a teenage daughter. And I said, you want your daughter to go over there and fight and uh, potentially die in Ukraine? She goes, well, no, but somebody else needs to do something. And, and uh, what, what, what you're what you're talking about is exactly sort of that point and that um you know the the sense that you know it's it it's it's very troubling to to me and and i'm sure everybody uh, anybody to to watch the scenes that we're seeing because war is brutal uh it, it it affronts us in so many ways psychologically how how can somebody do this why why would he why would he do this it it, it destabilizes our sense of um security and stability and uh, and then on a really human level you know we see these images of people dying and we think you know you get one life and 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 they die a senseless death because some madman decides to cross the border an attack and 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 so it's really hard to explain uh, unless you put it in personal terms. That I've, I've found that you know, uh, if do you want America to be in a war? Do you want our taxes to pay for for more you know military hardware to go overseas and defend um, you know a country that um, is uh, you know uh, in the middle of Europe? And and it would make sense to to have some kind of stability there. I, I remember when the Balkan situation was happening, you know, I thought that a war in the middle of Europe was not a good thing. And so that peace enforcement uh, um, uh, deal was uh, was a good deal, the Dayton Peace Accords. And so the 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 trigger, the domino, I, I think is a NATO red line. And uh, they haven't, I think, wisely published what their red lines are uh, for NATO involvement. Uh, but it's it's, you know, a good example is Turkey announced the other day when this thing first started, one of our ships was attacked with missiles. Well, uh, you know, it turned out that it was an errant attack. But could that have been the, you know, Archduke Ferdinand being shot? Right. You know, that's or the main or the main. Yeah, or the main Turkey. Right. Yeah. And, and so, you know, Turkey's a NATO nation. They had a ship get fired upon. Um, do do we react to that and say, okay, Putin, you're ours now? And then we get into this conflagration that uh, could lead to you know a, a major land war in Europe between two nuclear powers. That we're in uncharted territory, and I think yeah. that's why we're seeing a little bit of extra caution from the you know the administration and how to how to move you know their their nature is not to move fast and so maybe maybe in this case that's that's a good thing uh that that they're not uh, that they're trying to figure it out as they go um so i i know i didn't fully answer your question but i 
No, I, it's okay. No, you, you got you got a flavor. Of I it, went on TikTok sure. and I got some answers. So, but <laughs> oh my god! <laughs> oh no! <laughs> <laughs> That's really funny. But let, let me just clarify yeah. a little bit of history. So the the main exploded in Cuba in the uh, Havana Harbor, probably a boiler explosion. But the Hearst newspapers blamed it on a terrorist attack and whipped up war frenzy, and the Spanish American War ensued. The uh, Franz Ferdinand was uh, the crown prince of Yugoslavia, if I'm right. And he was uh, out touring, where was he, in Herzegovina, in uh, Serbia uh, uh, or something? Austria, he was Austria. Austria. Oh, he was in Austria. Uh, yeah. yeah, and uh, yeah. He, he, there was a failed attempt on, on uh, killing him. A bomb went off, and he went to the hospital to uh, visit the people that were injured. One of the black hand assassins happened to be coming out of a, of a sandwich shop and shot uh, Franz Ferdinand and his wife. And uh, and because of exactly what we're talking about, these realpolitik relationships triggered a series of dominoes where people were required to fight, you know, against each other. To um, you know, as soon as one country declared war because of the the assassination, multiple other nations had to come in. It wasn't a NATO alliance, but it was you know, it wasn't that far off of these kinds of same alliances we have today. Correct. That's correct. It, uh, it, it was amorphous, right? And, you know, the countries got aligned as the action began to unfold. So you had, you know, Germany and, and Italy um, and, and, you know, Japan all, all, all teared up and, and uh, the rest of the Western world uh, trying to figure out uh, how, to, how to fight it. And boy, that was an ugly war. And, and yet uh, rail had, you know, you had this emergence of "Quote unquote technology, industrial technology with railroads and 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 vehicles were just uh, becoming a thing, and and they were able to move troops quickly on rail, and that's why you'll see in Europe the different between borders the gauges are different. Um, Post World War One, they wanted to prevent invasion, and so you couldn't drive a, a train, you know, all the way across Europe. You had to you had to offload and get on a new train." And, oh, wow. and uh, because the, the, the gauge sizes are different. So a train in Austria won't work the same as a train in Hungary. And Interesting. I, even Interesting. when we were deploying to Bosnia, we had to, uh, in 1996, 95, 96, we, we, had, we railed stuff through Germany into Hungary and, and then down into Croatia. And we had to offload equipment and put it on a new train that was waiting just across the border, uh, and that's a remnant of World War One uh, when when and, they uh, um, changed the crazy. Gauges. And my, my understanding is the the autobahn was Hitler's attempt to move vehicles now uh, on roads. Mm -hmm. That was why he built the autobahn. So it, really interesting. Yeah, and Eisenhower right. with the interstate system well, it's very much the same way. It's uh, interior yep. it's interior lines of communication. That's a, that's a, a real good example of having interior lines of communication and uh, Audubon or the interstate system. And, you know, we use it for recreation and travel and getting to work and that kind of thing. But there is a defense application to it. Well, General Tata, I, I hope you are right that we get some sort of uh, detente going here or, or some sort of agreement. Uh, I, it feels like that's what should happen. I can't imagine certainly the Russian people don't want anything <laughs> of the domino effect and i don't even believe putin does no matter how crazy he is he still wants a country to rule <laughs> you yeah. know what i mean i, I don't I, I can't imagine yeah. he's that he, he we've had people on this show talk about 
his psychopathology, but he's still. A, We're not sure if he's a. He's not. A, he's mind. not an irrational operator. I don't think, and and he, at least in the sense of self-preservation and a well, historical record not. and things like that. I, I think so, but uh, but again, uh, let me hold up the book. It is chasing the lion. If um, you don't want to read it by this point, uh, I don't know what's wrong with you. Uh, and check out many of uh, the general's other books. There, as you've said, there are, what fourteen other ones. They're all listed in wow. the Wow, fourteen yeah, other books. It's yeah, yeah. yeah they're right behind me here. There they all are. So, Double Crossfire, Dark Winter, Three Minutes to Midnight, a whole a series uh, that I guess you wrote with Nicholas Irving, right? A series yeah. of books. How come these things aren't movies? Yep, uh, Which one's going to be a movie? Uh, well, you know, it's it's interesting, and we can do another podcast about this uh, if you ever have me back. But the the um, of course uh, Nick Irving is a young African American Army Ranger sniper, and we have the same agent uh, Scott Miller and Trident Media Agency in New York. And Scott called me one day about five years ago and said, "Hey, why don't the general and the sergeant write a fiction series together out of his very popular." biography called The Reaper, uh, the most deadliest special forces sniper in the Rangers or something like that. And um, so, you know, Nick and I got together and riffed a little bit and we wrote these three books and um, he's had a lot of interest from um, the, the uh, Kevin Hart productions, um, Michael B. Jordan, supposedly, Apple Great. Um, TV and uh, so Nick calls me about six months ago and said, hey, Tata, we got a deal. And I'm like, oh, awesome, awesome. He goes, but um, because you work for Trump, they don't, in they don't want you involved. Um, right, right, you're not in and, it. <laughs> yeah, right. Perfect. And I'm like, seriously, you know, uh, it's that's where we are today in our society um, because I work for Trump. And, and uh, you know, they... they um, uh, yeah, I, I don't know if that deal's going forward or not. I have no visibility on it. But, you know, I've had other um, movie producers uh, call me about, uh, uh, you know, Dark Winter, which is a, you know, a techno uh, thriller uh, about World War Three that envisions a lot of what's mm -hmm. happened today. Belarus, Russia going through Belarus uh, to Poland um, and mm -hmm. North Korea attack. And, and then, um, you know, Mortal Threat is probably... Um, the most interesting, yeah, all my books, I, I, I think fresh plots, but happens in the Sahara desert and, um, the, the, uh, this young, uh, doctor, she finds, uh, she and another doctor find a cure for Ebola and HIV that shares the same protein. Mm -hmm. And, um, it's, uh, ISIS discovers a lab and it's a race across the Serengeti, uh, to preserve their last few vials and, and the medical cooler only has 48 hours on it and, and, uh, before everything spoils and it's lost forever and humanity in wow. Africa will. So pertinent. what are you predicting for the future? Uh, with respect to my books? Or, well, it seems like you have a pretty uh, good, you have a pretty good mind for, uh, thinking up fictional, uh, uh, plots that get close to reality. What kind of fictional yeah, plots? Yeah, so what, are you what I'm working on now, I, I'll tell you, it's it's uncanny. Some of the stuff that you know, the uh, the book cycle is about a two year cycle, right? You write a book for a year to eight months, yeah, and then it's in production for a year with the publisher. And by the time it's coming out, um, you know, swarming drones, for example, that attack things. 
that was in Rogue Threat. Mm-hmm. Ridley, Ridley Scott called me about that book. Um, his, his production crew did. Um, uh, and uh, that, so what I'm working on now, book 16, is um, uh, the idea of a uh, tech uh, government uh, that uh, is all controlling and all consuming and all seeing and all knowing. And I, the my hero is, um, I, I don't want to give too much away because it will give away the next book, um, uh, Total Empires, the title of uh, the new book coming out in, uh, in about uh, nine months. And we'll just call that country uh, Bina. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> exactly. Mm-hmm. Well, um, Total Empire is all about um, China and um, some tech oligarchs and and some U.S. Uh, government personnel working in uh, cahoots to um, uh, you know line their own pockets. So, you know, one of the things that I've noticed about um, senior political appointees, of which I was one. Um, the uh, at the end of the day, there's there's um, you know I'm a longtime public servant, Drew. Um, three decades in the military. I transitioned into education, serving in D.C. public schools and in Wake County, Raleigh, North Carolina, and then state government as the Secretary of Transportation in North Carolina. Um, and my mother always said, you know, Bones. That was my nickname as a kid. Bones always make a difference, no matter what you do. And so I've always tried to honor my mom in that way. And uh, but I, I've also noticed that um, not everybody's like that. And what you get is a lot of people get into these senior positions only to aggrandize themselves, only to enrich themselves, mm. only to mm. um, have the power and stroke their ego. And and that's that was uh, I, I would say I was naive. I, I maybe hopeful is is the right term. But it, it was mm. um, uh, it was misplaced hope. Uh, some of the stuff that I saw, you don't have people. You, you have some people that are true public servants, but uh, there are also equally a number of um, you know bureaucrats and political appointees that are just out in it mm. for themselves. And and so my uh, one of my hallmarks is that there's always something like that reflected in one of my stories because you know, I write from my heart and I try to be authentic and. And um, so there's so there's that at play in every one of my books, not just um, uh, Jason Lyon or Total Empire. It, it's sad to hear that, but I suppose not not surprising. Hey, there was one last question, completely unrelated to all this, that I just w- was thinking of a few minutes ago, and I just just want to toss it out. Has has any of the senior officials ever contemplated trying to work? the world in such a way that Russia actually became a Western ally was, you know, being part of NATO or something was, was that ever anybody's plan? And if not, why not? Well, you know, if you remember when, um, Russia began to unravel, um, uh, there's a real good book on this. Uh, I forget the name. I was written by a businessman, but he, he, um, he went over, uh, as Russia, and it was all about financial opportunity. But if you recall, there was this huge effort to um, make uh, help Russia become a capitalist country and to, to find a way to 
um, democratize them a little bit, right around the 90, early 90s, late 80s, and, you know, post Reagan, post uh, as the wall fell and everything was falling apart, there was this program put together called Partnership for Peace. And that was sort of like Junior League NATO and mm. um, or Junior Varsity, like not Junior League, Junior Varsity NATO. Mm. And, and, and a lot of the NATO countries today were initially in Partnership for Peace. And so there was an engagement on many different levels with um, partner, quote unquote, partner nations. And, and they went through a process and then applied for NATO membership and became a NATO member, which comes with obligations, but also, um, you know, benefits as well, because you get that protective umbrella uh, around you. Um, and, and, you know, Russia, you know, the, the, um, discussion that, you know, Putin's position is that, well, you weren't supposed to do that. You said you weren't going to do that, NATO. You said you weren't going to take former Warsaw Pact and make them NATO nations. And, you know, we can agree to disagree on that. Uh, but, um, you know, I think it was smart for us to do everything we did uh, with regard to that. And it was Republican and Democrat presidents. I mean, Clinton did a really good job with this um, as, as uh, that program expanded. And we marched uh, eastward with our, um, you know, collective security umbrella, and and uh, I, I I think the outreach was there. I think the the mechanisms were there, and it just never converted. Um, uh, and I, you know, I, I look at that um, the Iraq War. I, I have to say, I was not a fan. You know, I was a colonel in the army at the time, so I had to do what I was told. But um, I I never understood it. I, I, I redeployed from Kosovo with my troops and 9-11 occurred while I was in Kosovo and I brought my troops home um, and we were um, told to get ready to go to Afghanistan, um, you know, Thanksgiving Day uh, when I stepped off the plane back from Kosovo. So we go train. We're in training in January of 02 in uh, Louisiana and the commanding general comes down and says, Tony, you're not going to Afghanistan. You're going to Iraq. And I never understood that. And the Iraq war to me was a complete folly and, and a huge mistake that altered the azimuth of U.S. foreign policy. Um, it's, you know, for forever. And, and, um, and it did two things. It put us into Iraq, uh, much like Russia's going into Ukraine now. Uh, no, I'm not comparing the two at all, but, um, you know, it's a quagmire. Uh, and I think it's going to turn into one for, for, for Russia, but it also changed our policy in Afghanistan. And, and it put us in Afghanistan for 20 years instead of one, two, three years and in and out of there mm -hmm. as, as, you know, I thought we should be. And, mm -hmm. and so the, uh, you know, this, um, path that we were put on, um, uh, is, uh, you know, post, uh, Iraq and then, during the Obama years, I, you know, there was not any serious engagement of Russia. If you remember, Obama called out mm -hmm. Mitt Romney and, and said, you know, you know, the 80s is calling. They want their foreign policy back or whatever. And, you know, there's been a lot of memes going around now on that. But um, that understanding Russia through a, a real politic lens and from a realist national security lens instead of from a social media hashtag lens and what's what's transactionally important today uh versus tomorrow um that that's what in my opinion led to this is this sense that 
um, we can just ignore Russia and we can use it as a battering ram on Trump. We can, we can, you know, forgive, you know, anything that, you know, uh, Obama, when Syria went uh, across the red line on chemical weapons, um, he didn't, he didn't do anything. He called Russia in to take care of it. And Russia has all the Syrian chemical weapons now that are now being rumored to be deployed in Ukraine. And, you know, where was the media on this saying, you know, you're in Putin's pocket, you're Putin's puppet. And, and so that's the unfairness of all of this and having personally been treated hugely unfairly by the media, uh, just because I was appointed by Trump. Um, you know, it's, it's really sad for our country. Um, that we're at this place where you have good people everywhere just trying to scratch out a living and carve out their life and 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 they just get dogpiled on by social media and and the big corporate media and big tech so um, yep that, that's a long way from your original question <laughs> no I, but it's a it's a good place to sort of roll to a stop and uh, to welcome you back anytime if you anytime you need an outlet or want to sit and think about things i'm i'm fascinated by these because i know nothing about it and so uh just to have somebody who knows what he's talking about try school me frankly uh it, it's it's reassuring susan i feel you I suspect you feel the same way mm -hmm. i feel more at ease after talking to him like, yeah i feel yeah, like i oh, do yeah that there's, maybe it's gonna be okay well and, and i mean i, I hope I, we don't have to have you back because we're scared shitless <laughs> I, I hope it's just like for other reasons but 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 i'm but i'm back to i'm back to parazad your your uh and your your uh, villain in the in the book which is i'm sure there are russian generals on the other side that are kind of contemplating the same as you as you um and and i'm sure you've even probably had contact with some of them over the years that i know there's i know there's that interplay a little bit at least in the intelligence side and so it yeah. gives me a little bit of confidence uh to um tell my kids that we don't have to buy those big bags of rice and beans and <laughs> have the uh, decontamination <laughs> suits ready to go. Well, we need it Though anyways. maybe we should anyway. I don't know. I, I might be wise. But uh, Underground listen, bunker. Uh, General, it's such a privilege to talk with you, and I really appreciate you yeah. spending all this time with us and being so generous with not just your time, but your your knowledge, and hopefully we can talk again very soon. Yeah, likewise. Um, by the way, thank you, Susan. thank you. Thank you so much for your service. Yes, indeed. Indeed. Oh, and no, uh, and all this piling on stuff day. and the... And I do, I do feel, you know, I've been out in the public for a long time and I just feel that this, this stuff, there's a lot of stuff dampening. You said something an hour ago about, yeah, I know, about uh, ideology versus reality, is that's what you were talking about at the moment. And, and reality always has a way of coming to bear. And I feel like reality is coming into this country again and it will reassert itself and We'll, we'll kind of settle down a little bit and again much the, the hegelian yeah. idea that of synthesis antithesis wait excuse me um thesis antithesis synthesis we will get to some sort of synthetic place where we maybe pull some good things out of all these experiences as well so we'll leave it at that and uh again thank you so much thank you team Cheers. And uh, Caleb, Susan, thank you all God for bless putting America. this together. Michelle Poe, thank hmm. you for uh, setting this up. I believe tomorrow we're going to try to do a show of just questions from Restream and maybe some He was a good book, out. Drew. I'm very proud of you. Thank you. Uh, oh, by the way, uh, Jorge Suarez Melendez, thank you for putting us together and asking me to, to book uh, the general because I met the general and I wanted to book him, but Jorge said, do it now. And I said, okay.
Done. Done and done. We're going to promote that book. Brando so, said he'd be you, in Laurie. a bunker with me. Who did? Brando. Thank you, Brando. Brando. There's Brando. <laughs> uh, yes, indeed. I'm I appreciate at the race that. Uh, again, I have a lot of rice and beans. So tomorrow we will uh, <laughs> tomorrow we will just uh, do questions and uh, look at the restream and I'll, I'll give a little update on COVID. People seem to like talked about that. We had a nice conversation with uh, the psychiatrist about mandates and whatnot. We'll we'll review some of the stuff that's out there. A lot of a lot of, a lot of excessive ink spilled on BA two Omicron. We'll talk a little bit about that. I'm not saying you don't need to worry. I'm saying you don't need to panic. Ask Dr. Drew is produced by Caleb Nation and Susan Pinsky. As a reminder, the discussions here are not a substitute for medical care, diagnosis, or treatment. This show is intended for educational and informational purposes only. I am a licensed physician, but I am not a replacement for your personal doctor, and I am not practicing medicine here. Always remember that our understanding of medicine and science is constantly evolving. Though my opinion is based on the information that is available to me today, some of the contents of this show could be outdated in the future. Be sure to check with trusted resources in case any of the information has been updated since this was published. If you or someone you know is in immediate danger, don't call me, call 911. If you're feeling hopeless or suicidal, call the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline at 800 273 8255. You can find more of my recommended organizations and helpful resources at drdrew.com/help.